We here for a bonus episode of my homeboy podcast. We are still here with King Williams, uh, the 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 man, the myth, the legend, Drew, and my homeboy Twine, who's over there getting ice. This is a bonus episode, so we just talking, kicking shit, doing what we do, as per usual. Um, you can find King Williams' work on the Support Reporter, uh, as well as at I am King Williams on IG and I am King Williams on Twitter. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right, and we just going to continue that conversation we was having. All right, so I was in the middle of a question asking King, like, when would um, gentrification or more development come to uh, East Point? Uh, so East Point's a little weird because downtown College Park is taking a lot of their thunder right now, and also South Atlanta. So, But it's coming. It's it's going to take longer just because two other places are pulling in people who are gentrifying it. But looking at East Point on the map and you're naming those two places, I, sometimes, depending on your location, you're only talking about, like, a few miles. Yeah, it's, it's, strange. It, it's really the same place to me. And, like, yeah. my mind is the same place. But right. from real estate perspective right now, because downtown College Park, they they redid, they redid the center. They opened up that basketball arena. And then, like, that whole that part of Main Street is a little bit more developed than the East Point side of it is. Mm-hmm. It's easier for – and then they're building some apartments over there, too. So it's easier for people to, to – real estate agents to kind of steer people there. So, so okay. I got a question. I got a couple questions. That's why I, I, okay. I, I asked you to stay. So my first question – I want to ask you is uh the West Midtown thing. You were saying okay. that West Midtown is not a real thing. It's not. And that they are actually how many subdivisions? Okay, so yeah, West Midtown's not a real thing, but there's really two in particular neighborhoods that actually three that actually intersected. So West Midtown as we know it is a real estate construct. Um the same people who do the Terminal West venue, like uh. their initial owner back in the 90s, he was trying to do it. And people in the Atlanta Business Chronicle was even clowning, like, the idea of, like, I don't know if this is going to work, this idea of West Midtown, right? So it's taken him about 25 years to even get that pop. It didn't even start popping until, like, the last five or six years when you had the right number of people who aren't from Atlanta anymore who live over there. Right, because, yeah, that's what, that's what moved there. What's yeah. his name? That was what moved there more than anything to me, or what I've seen, is... Uh, like people that like people didn't know like when people was moving to Bankhead, people was like, "Bro, they moving to Bankhead," but they had renamed they had no it. context. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing is too, like most of the, the projects went down in Bankhead. Most of the apartments on Bankhead are being closed, but um, so like the they're already kind of weeding out poor people as well. So if you're a renter, it's much harder to stay in like Bankhead or Ashby, something like that, Vine City. Even it's just getting harder to live there. Um, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so with West Midtown, West Midtown is not a thing. It's one of the things we see in gentrification is this idea of Columbusing. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Columbusing. Is. Yeah, discovering a new place. Yeah, discovering yeah. a place that either didn't exist or it's just new to you. And so yeah. West Midtown. We, we grew up in Columbus, Georgia. Oh yeah, we, we, <laughs> yeah, we grew up in okay. Columbus, Georgia. So yeah, when you say Columbusing, it's like yeah, oh. yeah, we, okay. unfortunately, we, fuck yeah, that shit. Yeah. And <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. And one aspect of Columbusing is renaming. And so when you rename, so West Midtown and Upper West Side are essentially renamed to Chattahoochee Avenue. Um, and then the two particular names in the case of West Midtown, all of Georgia Tech is in this one neighborhood called Home Park. And you can actually see the marker still to this day. Georgia Tech is technically in Home Park by every map till this day. It's not West Midtown. It's not Midtown. It is Home Park. And that is where Georgia Tech, that entire campus is at. Right next to it, though, are two particular things, which is called House Night Park and House Station. But the biggest part of that is called Blantown. And Blantown was... Historically, when Sherman was marching to the sea and as he was burning down Atlanta and burning down most of the South, that is where enslaved black people or enslaved Africans settled. And so it's one of the reasons why the West Side has so much 
a large concentration of African Americans from that day is mm-hmm. because literally from the time of the Civil War, they settled in Blantown. It was named after the guy. Um, I want I, I forgot his first name, but his last name was Bland, and so as an honor to him, um, they named it Blantown. So all those enslaved people settled there, and the West Side as we know it today is due to Blantown. But when you call it West Midtown, you're essentially erasing all that history, not just from like Blantown, but also Georgia Tech and things like that. Right. And so then you spoke on Georgia Tech. So when I was at, I did a, uh, uh, I was at Georgia Tech and it's this thing called the Kanita Kanita Fund. Kanita Fund, but also the Kanita Building Mm -hmm. that's supposed to be this. That's why I asked you about the energy efficiency and stuff like that because it's like a new, it's like net zero uh, building. So to be net zero, that means uh, all the energy that they use, that they consume, they 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 are used less than five percent, or they put five percent, at least five percent, back to the grid. Mm-hmm. When I went in there, they were uh, putting back like I think one hundred and forty percent. But like all this stuff goes into the energy efficiency and stuff like that. So I just kind of wanted you to speak on to like how that Georgia Tech area is like when I just discovered hometown, and then like how they get these massive amounts of funds and stuff like that to you know do what they will okay so yeah georgia tech is in home park but the west mid okay so here's it here's we'll even go back keep it 100 midtown's not even a thing what what midtown's not a thing like it's a region it's not an actual part of town okay so i know this is gonna all right so midtown has had a bunch of names. There's a great article in Atlanta Studies about this. It's a website called Atlanta Studies that comes out of Emory. They go through every single name of the place that we now call Midtown. Midtown exists because by the 19... When I told you before, gentrification Atlanta started in the 1970s. Yeah. What really happened was that area that we kind of now consider like the main heart of Midtown, like that Peachtree Street part and all the parts surrounding Piedmont Park, that was typically the places where two groups of people lived at, the, the LGBT community and also like the hippies. Um, and so a lot of the business owners didn't like that. So they went through a long-term rebrand. This is in the 70s? Yeah. It started in the 70s. I, thought, I honestly, no no disrespect to anybody. I mean, honestly, I'd be afraid to say anything about LGBTQ, but no disrespect to anybody LGBTQ. But I thought that was new. I, thought, I really <laughs> yeah. thought the Midtown gayness was new. I thought that was like. No, nah, they've been here. Really? We've had gay people in Atlanta since Atlanta's been Atlanta. So it's not a new uh, thing. The thing was that made it different about Midtown in the 70s. This was actually a. This gets into a more darker place, but, like, we just got to remember this, which is desegregation happens in the 60s. MLK gets killed in 68, and all the riots happen. When, at that point, every person who was white moves out of the birds, but also, like, society actually changes. So when most people, you look talk to the average American, black, white, or indifferent, mm-hmm. their views are kind of in the center. Like, if you even notice political parties, there were exactly. some parts. At that point, like, we can... In real time, the moment Martin Luther King was killed, April 4, 1968, the political parties really, really do shift. And... As a result of that, like the LGBTQ population, too, they're also kind of popped up in a lot of civil rights, Black Panthers movement, the women's movement. If you are out as somebody in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, and you're in the burbs, you literally have to leave your home because people could firebomb your home. People could show up at your home. People could kill you. So the only safe space to literally be out and be gay or be lesbian or transgender was in the city of Atlanta. And the one place that was welcoming to everyone was the hippies because hippies were welcoming to everyone. So right. that's kind of how that happened. The hippies eventually got priced out or grew up and got jobs. And the LGBT <laughs> and stay broke. Yeah. And, the, and then the LGBT community kind of like thrived around Midtown, which is why Midtown has such a strong presence there now. Yo, so. this is this is 
I, I do have some questions. No, I need information. Yeah. No, this is, and I and I still had another question as far as uh, I wanted you to speak on. Let Andrew get his question. Uh, it's not. Yeah. It's, he, it's, he had it written down too. Yeah, which is no, no, you can go ahead because I. It's like he, yeah, it's, it's um, it's this one place. So what's the history on? It's not Hollis Park. It starts with a, Call Your Heights. What the history on Call Your Heights? I wanted you to kind of speak on that because I there's some place that I kind of gravitated to. Okay, so there's. If you know anything, just you know, little nuggets. Keep it gems. short. Uh, Before, why you think? Yeah, about, I'm just where, asking. Where you. is Call Your Heights? Call Your Heights is the so Atlanta is the circle with the plus sign in the middle. Uh-huh. So if you go to the left side of the plus sign, mm-hmm. and like to the left side of the plus sign, and then the top of the like the horizontal line, that's Call Your Heights. The, oh, like, uh, the, like twenty on the west side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm trying to pull up this article. I like, and I really liked it about. But long story short, Call Your Heights is one of like the many places in Atlanta where White flight happened, and so the connotation of what being in Collier Heights was like. Mm. Um, it is now interesting enough, because it's also one of those places that's on the borderline, like you said, of a lot of other places. The connotation of what Collier Heights means now is being middle class, being strong, I think is going to change a little bit. It's going to still be middle class, but the type of middle class is there is very different. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to fully get into that one yet, because I think there is some things changing about but like most areas gentrifying in Atlanta, but I think Collier Heights... It's a black area now. I think it still says black middle class, but instead of middle class, it might be upper middle class. Right. I, that that's what diff- I'm thinking, too. And, but also, too, there's going to be a large number of people who are there who also aren't from, like, Georgia or Atlanta, period, in that part of Collier Heights. So you're going to continue to see that. I think Collier Heights is an uh, interesting area. I think uh, Collier Heights will end up being not necessarily like the Pont City Market or the uh, – what's the new one that's in Pittsburgh that they're building up? Uh, the – Pinewood, it ain't Pinewood. What's the new place that they building? Uh, they building them everywhere. You got the Marietta Square, not the Marietta Square, but the Roswell Square. Oh, they got a food hall over there. Yeah, is what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, no, nah, it's they building in Pittsburgh. They building one in uh, Austin, no, nah, still uh, Hiram. They building one in Hiram. It's the same it's people like, who did Pont City Market, and they built oh, it wow. in Pittsburgh. Uh, I cannot Pittsburgh Yards. Pittsburgh Yards. Okay, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, Pittsburgh Yards. I don't think it'll be quite that bougie. I think it's the people who still want the square footage and the houses and yeah. all that stuff. So they'll have, like, so right now everybody wants to move into the city, and wants to have the city life. That's not true. Well, continue. not not. I'm just saying like. City life. Yeah, like, yeah. people want to have that whole urban, central, gray walls, overlooking. Like, they want to have yeah. that. But, but but at a point in time, it was everybody wanted to live out in the country and have a yard and a dog and all that good stuff. Now everybody wants, like, a little cute dog and a nice condo. So I feel like people that move to uh, Collier Heights will be interesting to view. or that Because I think it's going to get gentrified, and their house is going to be super expensive. But I'm just wondering, like, what yeah. they're – politics will be and how their kids will act and what will it that develop is, into. I think it, I stick by the statement. I do agree with you. I think th- there's two things you said that I do want to speak to that. One of which is um, the burbs are urbanizing and the city is becoming more like the suburbs. So what's going to happen is if it continues on this track, Atlanta will feel more unified in terms of like the shopping, the retail experiences, what the rooms and like you said, like the apartments, everything will start to look the same. And mm-hmm. we know this is actually what happened in Los Angeles as well, where a lot of the stuff became very like synonymous and very similar together. And so Atlanta's kind of going through that right now. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So it, the difference is though, well, you talk about urbanism, like, so people, the, the back to the city movement is essentially a form of urbanism. 
The difference is, though, Atlanta's so spread out that everybody's back to the city thing is going to look different from everyone else's. <laughs> right. Because we're just, like, geographically, like, actually far apart. Like, yeah. the West End is actually really, 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 really far away from, like, Duluth. Like, and I don't think we really understand how far they are away. Oh, that is very far. Because I, yeah. uh, when I first moved back to Atlanta, uh, I was living in East Point, working in Duluth, when 85 South, I'm 85 Bridges burnt. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. luck. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a nightmare. But let me get your opinion on uh, all these shopping areas like the mm-hmm. Croc Street Market and the, the one they're building in the building. What, what do you feel about all those? I wish more black people were doing them. Uh, do we have the resources to? Yes. We do? In okay. the case of Atlanta, we do. Like Atlanta and D.C. and New York and maybe Chicago, you really have like legit a strong upper upper middle class and like generally wealthy black people and also the political and like labor to actually pull that off. There's that's four places in all of the United States where that could even happen. Okay. Um, but I to answer your question more directly, I think that the food hall trend and it actually comes from New York, that same place I told you about, Jamestown, who did mm-hmm. Chelsea Market, they are the legit originators of the the new not the originators of a food hall. And I'm not saying that, but the the trendy food hall place where I go eat can buy some groceries. Jamestown properties, when they did Chelsea Market back in like the late nineties in New York City. That is actually the kickoff. And they're the people who also own Pont City Market. They're the ones who actually kicked that whole trend off. So they've been doing this for a while. Like, they know what they're doing. Uh. So everybody has been following trends. When it comes to real estate, when it comes to both commercial and residential real estate, residential real estate goes in two ways. You follow residentially what happens in California. You follow commercially what happens in New York. Ah, Mm. that's smart. Gyms. And it trickles out to the rest of the country. Do we have a bomb or, or, or <laughs> something that we could drop it out? Uh, we, we got some claps, some tubas. We got some. Uh, we'll give you a round of applause. How about that? Okay. No, nah, that was cool. hard. Like, I just, as long as we took the time. That was, that was, that was very insightful. Like, oh, okay. Changed my life. I'm going to start think thinking. About, but think about, like, on the residential side, right? So HGTV also, like, factors into that now. But think about it. The open concept. Everything from, like, the open concept thing is a very California thing. That is not typically a U.S. thing. So the open concept, like, the well, the well, like, defined view of, like, the city. Like, if you're not in the city or, like, the well, if you live in the burbs, you want the, the view of, like, the, the street right. or what. That actually is a California thing, too. So even also, too, like, the whole thing about I want to have bay windows. I want to have big doors. I want to have, like, larger, wi- like, shelf space. I want to have an open play playroom for the kids. Those are California-based things that kind of trickle out to everyone else. But when it comes to real estate and the commercial side with New York, when you talk about even things like the, the, hype, the hype beast culture, which comes out of New York, which is now went online, yes. like Supreme Drops, or, like, we have it in Atlanta with Wish, um, even, like, performance venues, that comes typically out of New York City. They're typically like the innovators in that space first. And so it all, even the High Line, even though the Beltline and the High Line, the Beltline technically exists first, the High Line is the one who actually like cracked the code. Like, all right, cool. We're going to have a walking space and we're going to show you how to make it pop. You're going to have food festivals. You're going to have venues. You're going to have people who want to build on our particular part. And they beat the Beltline and did a better version of what the Beltline is trying to do now. And they came out second. So New York City, when it comes to the commercial side, they they get it because uh. that is like their core business in New York is finance and real estate. In cool. California, their core business is entertainment and real estate. So you're going to have very different things. Okay, Drew, what what were those questions that you had? Yeah, you got your list. No, right. I had like written down like a few things going back to what you were saying on the previous podcast about the. Um, my first question is: so for um, affordable housing, mm-hmm. is affordable housing? Built to make profit, or no. is it? 
always intended that a loss is going to be taken. Like, what what was what's, what's the dollars and cents behind? Okay, that? if you talk to a real estate developer, they can they will tell you that all affordable housing is unaffordable for them to build. But um, the ethos of building affordable housing is providing shelter and safety for people. Um, they usually build things at cost, okay. and so the thing that kills affordable housing projects isn't the building of it; it's the maintenance of it. Mm. And so when you talk about anything from public housing in the United States, the reason why public housing across the United States went down wasn't because the buildings are bad. Like most of the public housing buildings, actually, they actually probably built better than any commercial or even like residential thing. It was the maintenance to keep those things up. And so Atlanta, that definitely was the case. They just stopped pulling money into it. St. Louis was a, the, the Pruitt Igo thing in St. Louis was actually the worst probably example of that. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, it's not really about affordability. It's like, can we maintain it? Like ten to fit, and so with most governments, they're like, "Can we afford to maintain the building?" We know the building is kind of made for cost. We know that's fine. We know we could even like build up some subways or like some like Walmart or something, and get mm-hmm. the taxes to pay that off in like five or six years. Mm-hmm. But can we maintain this for twenty years or thirty years? And that's when they are like, "I don't know." Okay. Because okay. um, going back to when you're talking about the new suburban planning, where they're trying to build like shops and eateries and certain things in their schools and everything so if you're if you're saying that's the move to do like say when you're building a new development how would you implement that already in an old development that's already taken place and if you yeah. did that wouldn't that just be gentrification because things like that tend to cause the price to go up that's a good question and the answer is yes and no at the same time okay. so design standards are a little different so Believe it or not, this is weird enough. Public housing actually has some of the highest design design standards in the United States because they have a different requirement. You could almost take some of the design standards of public housing and put them in like a posh neighborhood. And because real estate already associates poshness with this neighborhood, it's going to up it anyway. Even though you're taking legit, I'm pulling out the book of affordable housing, like standards from public housing. It's really about location. So if you're already in an area that's either gentrifying that's already rich, if you add anything that's going to even improve it, they're just going to make that a, a bigger cost. And so that's kind of how it plays out. Okay. So the design principles are solid. It's just like the real estate agents. Oh, well, look, now we got sidewalks. We got low-flow toilets. We have efficient water use. Now, instead of the house being $400,000 in Alpharetta now, we're going to ma- now make it eight. Because, look, we got all these new amenities where you could be in East Point and have the same level of, like, efficiency and infrastructure. And it's like the house just doesn't move right now. Yeah. So. Okay. I did have a question, uh, and I'm, I don't know if you, how you feel about this rapid oh, fire. This, we got a thousand. I like questions. Let me make I, sure, Andrew, you got any more questions? I like his questions, actually, because you like put a lot of thought in them. Yeah, fuck hey. me, then. Fuck yeah, you've been asking questions for two he episodes. Has a, he has a whole page written down, which is like, actually. <laughs> but, like, let my homeboy talk. <laughs> I like it. That nigga Napoleon, I don't even be saying that, bro. So that's what I was wondering, because obviously, from what I've seen, I always thought population growth and new shiny toys always brought dollars to whatever that area that is. That is Atlanta's ethos, but yes, yeah. 100%. It. New shiny toys, I think people are kind of, I wrote about this last year in like my end of the year thing. There's this whole movement like the people versus public subsidies and against the new shiny toy argument. Um, but for Atlanta right now, the commercial real estate industry, we talk about like Democrats, Republicans. You want to know who really has 100% sway on anything they ask for? It's the commercial real estate industry, period. Uh. Period. Like, they're going to make money. Like, even even when I looked at some uh, new developments they've done in, like, Buckhead, and you got your you got your living situations, and you got shops underneath, and all, and then you got shopping areas, eateries. I'm like, I'm looking like, if I lived here, I'd just be spending money. 
Well, that's the idea, especially for those places, because they got to yeah. pay that money back. Um, but the other thing is, too, there is a general efficiency when people – it's about health and efficiency. So yeah. we know for sure people are more efficient when they can have things close to them, and people actually are healthy when they can just get out and walk and move. And so that's a good part about it. But because that's it's Buckhead, they're going to, like, up the price on something that's a generally good idea, like, three, four times as much just because they're Buckhead, even though the idea is, like, a good idea. Right. All right. So, oh, I think you got it. Twan, Twan, you had some questions? No, I want I want Andrew to ask another question. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, so you just fucked <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no, pause. <laughs> pause. Pause. You got me. Nah, right. All right. Nah. I'm, I'm nah, done. You know, you know, you know, you, you're a little long winded, man. We want to make sure everybody got equal opportunity. No, I don't have any questions now. You don't have any more questions? I like to think mine out before I, I ask. I don't. He's actually really good <laughs> at this. Saying. I actually enjoyed that because, like, <laughs> that was good. Well, my, my question is about. Uh, I actually got a question. I'm joking. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> See, I'd have forgot. Now, my question is about uh. So previously, we were having a conversation about <laughs> opportunity zones, mm-hmm. and my theory on opportunity zones, which you said you agree with somewhat with, and somewhat you didn't agree with, and I just wanted you to build that out. Is I think opportunity zones is trying to spur rich people into building ghettos or projects. Is that's I feel like that's what they're made for that's what the bill was signed for so you can get let's say jeff bezos to build a project so then he would have to continue with the maintenance on it instead of the government building it and then they have to worry about the maintenance and things like well that. I, didn't, I didn't think opportunity zones was strictly uh, residential i thought it was it could be uh, commercial too yeah, oh it no it can, it can be commercial too yeah yeah definitely. i was when i was heard of opportunity well you know there's i'm a little ignorant too I mean, i'll be the first to admit but i, I was thinking Opportunity zones are strictly, well, not strictly, but 90% commercial, 10% residential. Okay. No, so I don't. Got, I, so it's open for you then. Yeah. So, I, I, so, yeah. So, that's my bad. I don't know which one it. it I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. He just said it was open. I just know that the people that live in the opportunity zones could not take advantage of it. So then I was like, gee, who actually could take advantage of this? Rich people. Well, why would they try to get rich people to build shit for poor people? So, and, and give them tax incentives for it is because the government don't want to build projects no more. That's so, what I, that was, that was my logic. So, so it I makes just, sense. Oh, yeah. But yeah. if they build not, nice, shiny things, I think they're just going to force those people out more than anything. Well, that's where rich yeah. people came in and was like, oh, they want us to build projects. Fuck that. I'm going to make some money. All y'all poor people, mm-hmm. if we build enough nice, shiny things, y'all are not, this is no longer impoverished area. So now y'all got, y'all can't afford the taxes. So now y'all got to find somewhere you know else what? to go. No, I'm a, and it spurs gentrification. I'm going to actually answer both of y'all because you guys are both, and all three of you guys are actually in the right ballpark. We have one real example now of what Opportunity Zones looks like, and it's called Hudson Yards in New York. Remember when I told you guys about um, Pont, the, the place that owns Pond City Market, um, Jamestown, what they did with the Chelsea Market in New York City, how they got that. That was really one of the things that got it popping up there on their high line. Once something gets popping like that and Opportunity Zones open up, the thing about Opportunity Zones, we got to be very clear about it. Opportunity Zones for the people at home is – the idea that this is a tax-free, um, taxable gain. So if you invest in these particular areas, these are supposed to be areas that are underserved or with underserved people or people who are generally poor. Underserved means you can have an area where people, you have 100% occupancy, but let's say they all work at Walmart. So they're, it's an underserved area because there's not a lot going on, even though those people are working. Poor is just generally people who meet the, the poverty threshold or underserved areas, again, that same group of people who work at a Walmart but let's say the town doesn't have anything else to shop at, any place to go get food or groceries or dentists. So the idea is like people can take their money tax-free, put it in these zones, and that's supposed to help spur, like, you know, reinvestment. 
a lot of people are saying this is just a tool for gentrification for the rich. There is a general there's a general concern that that is a true assessment about that. The other thing is, too, with Hudson Yards, we know for sure that this was a part of New York City where the High Line ended, and because of just where it was, kind of like what the Belt Line is now, like, people didn't live there because, like, it was like an industrial area that they decommissioned for a lot of it, right? Uh-huh. There was a train station there, but that part of where Hudson Yards is now, they saw that this was an opportunity zone, and the idea was, okay, since this part where the New York City trains are, st- you know, we're going to open that up now, Instead of being a train depot, we're going to open up a lot of it for people to get development, maybe build some affordable housing. This one developer, Stephen Ross, who owns the Miami Dolphins, um, he got $3 billion in subsidies from the state of New York, plus his own money. They put it in there, and they built these three large towers, one of which is, like, this really cool, like, walkway thing. It looks like you're walking, I don't know, to the sky or something. It's... um, And so they built that whole thing, but they used $3 billion taxpayer funds, plus his own funds, and... All the buildings that they built there were for, all the buildings that they're building now are for, like, the high-end, like, the, the ultra-rich in New York. Either the rich or the ultra-rich. Like, in New York, rich is very different. So, are you talking about the ultra-rich that I'm thinking about, like, tax haven from Sweden type of real it's estate for rich? It's people. It's for, like, New York City rich all the way up to the ultra-rich. So, like, the retail there is different. So, you have, like, your your luxury bags, your luxury handbag kind of stores, like your luxury food market, not even like a, a Ponzi market, but like the luxury food market is like a Bobby, like Flay five-star chef kind of thing. Like it's right. very geared, to, and the office space is like ridiculously high. It's geared toward people who are in like the 15% and up. Right. And that, that funds should have been going to like the bottom 85%. And so that's like one of the more egregious samples in New York. Because people, was like, people in New York were saying, before it was built, right? They saw the plan. They saw the towers. They saw, like, the ideas of food concepts. Okay, this is cool. And they're like, we're going to need $3 billion in public funds to help make this pop. And, you know, because the Opportunity Zone is going to help spur an investment. It did, and it brought an investment, but it went to nobody else in New York. So if you aren't somebody making over 250000 or so in New York, you can't even live in Hudson Yards. And that's good money. Like, even for near 250000 is still good money. What? Oh, so 250000 means you can't live there. You basically can't because it's, like it's still unaffordable for that person. You're not going to pay $5,000 a month for an apartment. So what, uh, what was like the property value in that area prior to this going kicking off? It was lower because it was like the train depot. Because like it, was, it wasn't even available for public use. Oh, wow. So like they got essentially got $3 billion on land that was effectively zero. Because anything that's owned by the state or federal government... You don't, there's no, th- they typically do not assess the value of land on that because the government has no need for, they don't get taxed on, they have no need to produce right, money. Right, they don't got no dog in the fight. So that's why when you got something like Hudson Yards, that's why I was like, oh, this is free money on top of free money. I'm going to make this work. So how do you think these opportunity zones are going to affect the uh, development in Atlanta? I think nobody's jumped on opportunity zones yet. And I think that's more a matter of time. Um, I think that... It's going to take a couple of years. Once all the big developments come out and then people see, oh, where are the opportunity zones? Are? Okay, there's some on Bankhead. There's some in Decatur. Not the city of Decatur, but, like, once you get over and you write on, like, the Candler Road sign and you're, like, in the hood hood, almost all of that's an opportunity zone. And so mm-hmm. once all of that, like, developers start doing that, all right, cool, we still need to get a buck. Let's get an opportunity zone going. We'll start convincing some of our friends and people to start dumping money into opportunity zones. You're going to see that happen. I think all that's going to do is, like, push out people who really could use the funds. And so I think the mechanism should have been where Opportunity Zones should go to places that are like nonprofits or this thing called community development corporations because they're not public housing entities. Is that like PUSH uh, with Pittsburgh Yards and all that good stuff? Nah, that, no, that that's a little different. Okay. But uh, 
I'm trying to think who has a good one. Oh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh do actually does have a CDC. I think it's called Pittsburgh CDC. A community development corporation, what they do is their whole goal is like, like a, a housing authority. The difference is a housing authority has to, by law, create affordable housing for X number of residents. Um, mm. A development authority, they can, a community development corporation like Pittsburgh, they, their goal is to not only get you an affordable housing, but also to like get people who, are, who could be entrepreneurs, people who could get trades. Their, their job is to point you like and actually do like the thing we always talk about. Their job is to typically do that. My thing was the Opportunity Zones Fund should go to those type of things because they typically plugged in. They know all about the zoning. They know all about the real estate. They know about the community meetings. They know all about the land use. They typically just don't have funds. So like mm. those funds should go to them because if you want to actually do the same things you do, build that middle class up, get people working, get somebody who's maybe in drugs off into like a real treatment program, that community development program typically actually knows that person and like where to direct them. They just typically have no funds. Okay. So okay. we, so on paper, yes, the opportunity zone should be like, Oh, we're going to put money in. It's going to help. Reality is right now it might be like Hudson Yards or the other thing we've really seen is that Hudson Yards is the exception because most places haven't even taken the opportunity zones to heart. Um, like most rich people are just like, I'm not doing opportunity zones anyway. I, but I don't. So that's not enough of an it's incentive for them that they get tax like because honestly, so they get they get the money tax free. Well, they they send the money in, they they build this whatever, and then once they build this, the the capital they get off of that is tax free, and the, then the, the capital, capital gains is tax the capital gains is tax free, and then the capital that they use off of that that's tax free too. So like the money, so if I put you ten dollars in, twice. yeah. Yeah, I don't know if people understood that. So if I put $10 in and make $5, I don't get paid tax on that $5. Then I use that $5 to do something else. I don't have to pay for that money either. It's like you get tax-free money twice, and that's not enough to build shit? Like, it's like incentive because, like, do you really want to, right? And so the other thing is, too, opportunity zones. If I had zones, the money, I would. The other thing is, too, like, they're not <laughs> sexy locations. So, like, let's be honest. Like, we'll use the city of Decatur. So there's the city of Decatur, and there's, like, the debt. The opportunity zone is in the deck, and for the most part, nobody wants to be in the deck right now, and yeah. so that's the thing. Like even with East Point, like the opportunity zone isn't necessarily in East Point, but it's in South Atlanta. They got right? some of Metropolitan Parkway, yeah, MLK, Columbus, Cam Georgia, Campbellton, yeah, they, right. the, uh, yeah, the uh, so opportunity yeah, so zone in Columbus is uh, Winton over there by Aflac. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a wonderful place to be. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I mean, no, 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 no. We're talking about like, I'm not sweating. I, I feel you. you. Know you know I feel you. I see what and you then, And then over there by Kane, uh, what was it? E. Ken Holmes? Yeah. I'm not, I'm over not there, saying. Over there, um, I'm not saying that's a wonderful place to be now. I'm saying if I can get tax free income twice, that's a wonderful place to be. That's what I'm saying. It like is. the incentive makes it up for me. Like how how much more incentive could you use? Could you would you need? Like so, if I build a property, so there, I think I think if you do residential, you're going to run into the what uh, what King was talking about earlier, where the maintenance. Okay. Maintenance, yeah. maintenance can actually kill a project quicker than anything else. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I see. What you're so yeah, yeah you're getting that's just cost continuing to come out. So I mean, yeah. if you if you yeah. take if you if you do this opportunity zone, say you do, uh, let's just say duplex apartments, ten dollars. You know what I'm saying? You just do duplex apartments. Okay. Yeah, you got a nice opportunity zone, little residual income. But if you don't sell that quick, you know what I'm saying, you're going to lose in the long run. Yeah. You could. The other thing, too, about the residential thing is that people forget, like, even if you have all, let's say you're Jeff Bezos, you got, you're the richest person on earth, and you want to go to, like, South Atlanta or Decatur, like, the, the, the deck side of Decatur. 
you still have to work with those neighborhood groups because the neighborhood groups could theoretically just be like, nah, we don't want you here. Oh. That too. I, oh, one other thing I want to take about the Opportunity Zones was, and a quick aside, because I wrote an article about this. It's probably my second most popular, third most popular article this year. Um, mm-hmm. It was about Nipsey Hussle, and this is, it's a, it's a, it's about Nipsey Hussle, Ryan Gravel, the guy who created the Atlanta Bell Line, which is actually kind of like kicked off a lot of gentrification. Un, you know, that wasn't really his intent, but it did. And then also the West End Mall. And so mm-hmm. before Nipsey Hussle got killed, the guy I interviewed, Ryan Gravel, his partner, Don Ray Vaughn, um, they are the group leading the turnaround at the West End Mall. And so before Nipsey died, they was, Don Ray was actually, they both were out in California like a week before Nipsey died in California at a conference talking to Nipsey's business partner and what Nipsey was trying to do with Opportunity Zones out there, which was he was trying to get people to actually, that whole, not just the marathon building, but like he was talking about building a, um, a hotel and stuff like that there and using Opportunity Funds to get people who were like, I mean, he made a little money, but not like that kind of money, but to get people who are like upper end, like Puffy or Diddy's and all those people to right. bring money into Crenshaw because it's the Opportunity Zone and like kind of help spear that community. And since he was defective, he was unofficially acting like a community development corporation by putting people in the jobs, getting people all those things. That was his plan before he got killed. And so um, I interviewed them and we talked about that quite a bit, only like a little bit made it onto the record, but like he understood what opportunity zones could be. And he was like somebody from Crenshaw who was still trying to actually make that work for the people of Crenshaw. And I think that we're going to need a lot, a lot more people like that who may not necessarily have money, but can say, all right, cool. Like let's say you're East point. I know East point can really do this. I'm going to help lead a fund to get people in East point. I can show you where to be at kind of thing. And I think that's how opportunity zones really work is we need to find a person who's the local person there who understands the community, understand what the needs are, because that person can guide funds better than, like, Jeff Bezos giving somebody a blank check, you know? True, true. Where can people find that uh, information at? Oh, so that article is called, I think it's called, uh, it's at the Supporter Report, S-A-P-O-R-T-A, supporterreport.com. And I think it was called Nipsey Hustle, Don Ray Vaughn, and... I'm looking for it now, you guys. So my apologies. Oh no, it's good. It's no um, rush. They they listening. Yeah, big grandpa. Yeah, I yeah, mean, he'll say Sierra Umbrella. Oh yeah, Sierra. yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. yeah. We must yeah. got to shout out Big Grams and 121 Dreamers. Okay, that's you guys' company. Okay, no, yeah. here, it's an article. It's called Nipsey Hustle New New Developers, uh, Ryan Gravel, Don Ravon, and Transforming the West End. Or you can do this better. You can just type Nipsey Hustle plus Ryan Gravel, and it'll probably be the first thing that pops up in Google. All right, and Gravel in. is spelled G-R-A-V-E-L. So Nipsey Hustle plus Ryan G-R-A-V-E-L. Yeah. Um, or Nipsey Hustle plus S-A-P-O-R-T-A report. So Nipsey Hustle plus Supporter Report. Yeah, and that's uh, from King Williams. Yeah, no, nah, that's definitely. I'm definitely gonna look into that. That sounds very, very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, that that is an avenue to take advantage of opportunity zones. Because I mean, honestly, with my conversation, I was more so just saying, like how they're not what they say they are. But we, I mean, to Andrew's point, we need to figure out a way to uh, yeah, it's capitalize. Here. It's here. Yeah, yeah. I would like period has already passed. Right. And that's the one thing, too. The Opportunity Zones are recession-proof. So if you're a person making all these capital gains, like, you can still, like, it still exists. Like, that's a better way because then the land value is much cheaper. You get a bigger return on your buck when you need to sell it or anything like that. So it's a really good opportunity to jump on it. It's going to take more people being in those no rooms to get – No No, no. <laughs> all, all the pun intended because if we're – because the idea is, like, to kind of get philanthropy. But that's actually based on a lot – that's a long – a separate conversation about – 
the notion of philanthropy and like richness and like how that's supposed to work. And but that's a whole other conversation. All right, so I got two questions: one yeah. relevant, one kind of relevant. But we touched Ask on it about like an hour and a half ago. Okay. Uh, I refuse to read any article on the West End Mall uh, renovation. Uh, why is that? Man, I went to Morehouse. Man, you know, I, uh, you know the West End. Like we, you know, that's near dear to me, man. You know, I always, that's the only mall that you can. Only, that's the first mall I went to where I could pay my power bill, get some tall tees, get some wings. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like the, the West End Mall was like, it was the Atlantic Station for me. Like everything was there, yeah, grocery yeah. store. Like, like this, it was a grocery store in the mall. Like I, I loved it. But you know, so I mean, just just touch on what they're trying to do with. Okay, the, uh, so let's. I don't want to read it, but if you tell me about it, it's not okay. me reading it. All right, no, no, <laughs> I, I'll tell you about it. So, all right, so here's the, I want to ask you this then. So, why does the Western Mall exist in the first place? That is a wonderful question. One that I'm not educated enough to. Okay. Give you an answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so do you guys know why the, any of y'all know why the Western Mall exists? I mean, oh, so people can buy stuff. That's why any mall. I exists? mean, that's like any mall exists, but like, why that one in particular? Uh-uh. Oh, because it was the black people's mall because of two Atlantas, maybe. Kind of, but that's that's part of it. All right, so the Western mm-hmm. Mall exists. That's so, right. All right, so historically speaking, there's Atlanta has had more historical transformation than any other city in the United States outside of a war or a natural disaster. And I'm not oh. even playing about that. One of which was our highway development, the highway movement of the 1950s and the 1960s. Specifically, the highways as they develop, Atlanta's two, Atlanta has three main highways. You have I-285, which is yep. the loop, which we already talked about. But then you have I-75 and 85, which go north to south, and I-20, which goes east to west. Yep. The location of those was actually the more controversial and honestly the more damaging thing to black Atlanta as we know it. Yeah, my cousin told me we that. We talked about this on one of the episodes. Oh, yeah. My cousin told me that. He He's a what? history buff. Yeah. And they built it purposely to mess up yeah, black so, commerce. So black people in Atlanta have had three major instances that actually legit destroy black wealth. The first was the 1906 race riot, which was, long story short, white people got fake news from two guys running for the Georgia governor. Not just from two guys, but the local news. And then the two guys running for Georgia governor were like both like hyping it up. And so in September of 1906, what happened was a race riot happened like kind of near present-day Georgia State, kind of. And that spilled all throughout Atlanta and pushed more black people south and westward than had been there before in downtown Atlanta. It also uh-huh. burned down every major black business. It's the reason why Auburn Avenue existed as the rich, like sweet Auburn as we know it, because they burned out every black business on Decatur Street. So all those business owners had to literally take what they could out the rubble, and they went over to Auburn Avenue, and they had to, by their own hands, build their own bricks and build the entire like business uh, up there. The second thing... So though, it was a race riot with... A race to, to call riot, it a race riot is like with white people. No, no. To call it a race riot is insulting because this was actually like an act of genocide. Um, and so what happened was, this is a complete tangent, but I, I hope your, your people listen to this. Oh, no. no, right. no this show is all about tangents. Okay, yeah. so... Um, <laughs> sorry, so 1906. The, the year before, 1905, there's a famous book that comes. It's actually one of the most significant books in U.S. history, and it also spawns one of the most significant movies and the most significant mo- movements in U.S. history. In 1905, this book was called The Klansman. The Klansman was a book that uh, would eventually spawn the 1915 film A Birth of a Nation. Of a nation. That yeah. would spawn the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, and that iteration would actually take place at Stone Mountain Park here in Atlanta. Yes. You know what? You see what I have written down right here? I was going to ask you about the Confederate statues in Stone Mountain. We're going to get to that. Yes, sir. I wanna, but I want to answer this thing about the black middle. So all that happened, 1906. And then 
the day that the 1906 race where I had, you had a whole, people already had black, they had resentment to black people as a whole. People felt like the Civil War was the lost cause. People felt like Reconstruction was too fair to blacks, even though once Reconstruction ended in the late 1870s, it got real bad for black people real fast. Right. And so the ironic thing was when it got real fast, every black person got, no matter what, they got really tight in Atlanta, like super tight. And what happened was if everybody's only spending money within their neighborhood, they only go to school in the neighborhood, they only go to church, you go dock, what happens is your base grows really, really, really fast. So Reconstruction ends in roughly 1877. By 1906, there are legit wealthy black people who only do business with only black people. They're middle class, upper, like their entire economic spectrum of just black people in Atlanta who only do business with Atlanta, not included a number of black people who are like wash maids and other stuff like that, also for white people in Atlanta. This created resentment. And so when the Klansman comes out in 1905, it gets a lot of people up and going. The Klansman is a story of how a, one Klansman essentially is going to right the wrongs of the Civil War and he's going to go, he's killing black people. He's, you know, black people are causing rapes and like blacks are taking over America. So this is a real thing. The year later, 1906, like that day, we we have some proof on this now. That weekend that led up into the 1906 race ride, the Klan, the Klansman was as a stage play. But you have a governor's race with the two lead person, the governors are like also hyping up this anti-black rhetoric. All the major newspapers, including the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution at that time, were also hyping up all these false incidents of black people, particularly black men assaulting white women. And by September 1906, you have four different papers reporting that black men were raping white women, which by all historical accounts, both from the AJC and also police records, like like, this is not something we made up, did not happen. What happens, though, by September 1906, all those, the the governor's race, all the fake news, and the Klansman as a stage play now happening a year later in downtown, got people pissed off where people literally started grabbing black men off the street and just started killing them. No questions asked. And it became a three-day riot. And so what happened was it didn't start off as a riot. Legit was like, if we're in this room, people were legit firebombing houses, people shooting in the house. They were grabbing black men off the street, killing them, hanging them from ropes. And it wasn't until black people started moving further south to where we now call Carver and, like, that place behind the stadium, where black people at that point actually armed themselves and actually was like, we're not going to, like, you're not going to go any further. The only thing that stopped the race riots, the National Guard came in. They didn't attack the white people. They came in and actually attacked the blacks and took all the blacks' guns away and told all the white people to go back home. Yeah, it sounds about. It was so bad usual. that it actually. But here's the thing. This is why. Sounds about white. Yeah, but here's <laughs> the thing though. The moment black people started arming themselves on the south side, and then also like near the west side of the AUC, that's when everything stopped. It wasn't until black people started arming themselves that the race riot act, and it wasn't even a riot because a riot requires two equal combatants. Like Hong Kong is a riot because you have the protests who are equally matched with the pro the police. That was not a riot. This is an act of genocide. Which when you sneak attack a group of people and you start killing and destroying businesses at that point in time. There's no back and forth. You are just one. There's no equal combatants. So a lot of people now start calling the 1906 racial massacre. That was the first thing. That was the most detrimental thing to the black middle class. But the crazy thing is, after that, black people moved further south and west. The AUC got better. Black people still kept sending their kids to school there. And we stayed tight for the most part. That was, and that, for another 50 or so years, black, the black community was still pretty tight. It's the only reason why you can get a Martin Luther King to even happen is because the black community remembered the collective members, we're not going to have 1906 happen again, period. So what's the next thing you do after that? You get to the 1950s. You have all those GIs coming home from uh, World War II in the 40s. They're getting all these benefits. Like, the highways are slowly starting to develop, but the idea of the suburbs isn't happening because you really need, like, the highways to kind of push that. Like, people forget it's like most highways are like a two-lane. If you were really balling, a four-lane road. Like, so it's really hard to move around, period. And mm-hmm. so in the 1950s, once... Eisenhower starts pushing money for the federal highway program. 
he lets the states make their decisions. And that's the key fundamental flaw. Eisenhower wanted to use it more for, like, the military to have easy access to and from cities. He never wanted the highways to actually go through cities. And so what happened was most cities in the South, including where Black Wall Street was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, all the way to Atlanta, would take their highways and they put them all into the black areas of town. But not any black neighborhood, particularly the black middle class and where the black upper class live. And by doing that, you shift like not only the economic base and they got no restitution for this. They just like, all right, cool. They ain't getting get nothing from uh, eminent domain. No, they ain't get none of that. They were just like, all right, cool. So we're going to move this here. Y'all need to move. You got uh, two years to get out of here. And so people are like, what do you mean? Like, all right, you got one year now to move out of here. And so with Atlanta, what happened was where I 285, I mean, where I 20, 75, uh, North and South meet at and going further South. That was like everything from that point which is kind of like near the capital, going further south, was pr- primarily, primarily where black people lived at. Uh-huh. And everything going south was like either black people lived at where they had a strong educational base, a strong um, black middle class, black businesses, black doctors, and things like that. Th- that was all destroyed. And as like, uh, a like oh, my bad, we're going to give you this shopping mall, and that shopping mall became the West End. And wow. that's how the West End exists to this day. So it was an apology to make the... It was an apology, but none of our people got any restitution for it. And it was just like, oh, we're sorry. Here's the mall. We'll pay for the mall to be built. But y'all, hopefully the city of Atlanta will like maintain it. So here you go, West End Mall. And then somebody privately owns the West End Mall, which is the only reason it got sold. But that was the whole reason the West End Mall exists today. Which brings me to Don Ray Vaughn and Ryan Gravel. Ryan Gravel created the Beltline. He was a student at Georgia, Georgia Tech in the 90s. He went to Paris, France. He was a guy who grew up in Atlanta all his life. He grew up right... Uh, and, you know, Atlanta, you drive everywhere. And he moved right. to Paris like while he was in school. You know, you do study abroad, you go to Paris. He realized how different the world was when he had to walk around, go to Paris, and do everything by walking. But he noticed, too, Paris still had cars. They still had highways. So he was like, they still have cars. They still have highways. But why is everything much more efficient? And so he started noticing how their transit system worked and how, like, this whole system, like, roadways and walkways work. And he was like, I think I want to do something like this in Atlanta. And he found out all the old rail lines. And he was like, if we build a, a loop right here, we could build something that connects every place in Atlanta and we could start connecting. Because he, he noticed on the map, like the map from the, all the rail companies saying that if we essentially use these rail lines, we could connect to 50 out of like the 60 neighborhoods in Atlanta easy without building any new trains, any new roads like Paris did. And this could probably open up stuff. So he's doing it. It's going gaining steam. The moment he's made aware about it by a guy named Dan Emmergluck at Georgia State, who is a professor, he's like the scholar on like, if you talk about, like, foreclosures and stuff like that, he is, like, probably a national scholar on this one. Oh, wow. He tells me, like, hey, this idea you got, Ryan, this is going to probably cause gentrification. This is probably going to cause gentrification. So at first they clash, and they come together. Then he's like, all right. So then they come up with this plan. So Ryan's, like, thing is, like, if the Bell Line is going to be developed, he pitched it, and the city actually go for it. This is why the city of Atlanta now actually has a little bit of issue with the Bell Line, why people criticize it. Ryan's thing was like, all right, cool. So this is the belt line. We're going to stay with the belt line. The thing is, the belt line was supposed to do this, and this is the part where the belt only reason it exists for this one reason. The belt line was supposed to exist because once he was made aware of what gentrification is going to be, he told people it only got passed in the, the city of Atlanta City Hall because the revenues that was supposed to go from all the growth and all the gentrification was supposed to go back to every school in Atlanta, particularly every poor black school in Atlanta, was supposed to get all those gains from all the new tax base that was coming in. As of now, those schools have not gotten any of that. Wow. And so crazy. Ryan got pissed off about this. And when, then when they found out they made some more deals about it, Ryan Gravel left his, his baby, his creation, the thing he created from the beginning, to kind of spearhead to solve inequality and also help people. He just like, I'm leaving the belt line. And so for the last couple of years, he's just been like, I want to do something more significant. I want to help people. I want to do something that's different. The, the owner of the West End Mall 
sees gentrification is coming. And the thing about the West End is really interesting is that there's the West End Mall, which is essentially like a large lot, right? It's a very right. large lot. Most of it's parking, so you can do pretty much what you want to. It's like a parking lot. It's pretty flat. Well, it's curvy, but it's like, for the most part, a flat right, area. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's owned by one person. Right across from there, there's another set of buildings that's also owned by one person. So all those buildings you see right across in the West End Mall, like that little storefront of buildings, that's also owned by one woman. You're talking about like by the, I'm not you talking joking. You talking about over there on by, the other side? Yeah, but by, by Popeyes or by the mangoes, like people saying, like the little so like kind of like mangoes and all of them, like yeah, right. on that side. Okay. Not, not the mangoes. I'm sorry, the Popeyes side. Like so, the Krispy Kreme is right there on that side of the road. With the yeah, that's what the mangoes. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's owned by one woman. So the guy called Ryan. He's like, hey, I know. He's, he told him he's straight up. He's like, listen, I'm gonna sell this. You got X number of time to come up with X number of dollar. I'm not gonna say what the time frame of the money was. I promise him that. But if you do this, this is yours. I understand what's coming on. I know you have good ideas. I know you wanted to do something after the belt line really failed, and they kind of took it from you. He said, cool. He hits up Don Ravon, who's a Morehouse graduate. He's also Cody Chestnut's uh, cousin. He managed Cody Chestnut. This is initially how he got his start into public, um, private equity. Cody Chestnut was a singer. He had a song with the roots called The C 2.0. It's his big single. Um, Don Ray, after working with Cody, worked with Cody, got him involved with a guy, um, who was then the president of PIMCO, which is one of the largest private equity firms at that time in the United States. So he learned a lot about the private equity space, how to raise money, raise capital. Ryan's like, I don't have this kind of money. He, him and Don Ray are real cool. He know Don Ray's a guy from Atlanta, Morehouse grad. They partnered together, and Don Ray's like, you know what, I think I can raise this money. We got a real short timetable. Let me call every single contact that I got. They got the money. They got the money wired to the guy like they were supposed to, and now they're the, the ones leading the, the, the redevelopment of the West End. I really wish they would do a better job of explaining how that happened because right now it looks like, oh, they're going to push in like three, $400,000 condos on us, which there will be some of it. But the thing is with them, they're going to do something nobody else is doing in the city of Atlanta, which is their goal is they want to have 30, 20 to 30% of the units that are affordable, not like AMI affordable, like permanent affordable units for anybody who's in the West End currently. 20 to 30%? Of the units. They're going to be building a lot of homes there, a lot of apartments. Well, I don't know how much detail you got on it. So would those affordable homes be equivalent in look, style? Yes, the exact all same. All the aesthetics and yes, everything? the exact same aesthetics. So Why are those people go win the lottery? Whoever get those, how they go to decide? Well, that's the thing. They're still working out that now. There's Hunger th- Games. There's two. <laughs> other yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two parts about it that I I can I'm gonna tell now that nobody really knows about, and I'm gonna when I publish the interview again. It, this is something that nobody else has. So Atlanta, they know this too. So one thing they're offering too is like for a lot of those black businesses that are gonna be displaced when they build it, instead of being displaced that are currently in the West End now, some of them are gonna come into the new development for sure. Like they already know that. Um, so some of those places in the mall will still be there, just be in a new setting, right? There's a lot of other, like, restaurants and black-owned businesses there. They know when that pops off, it's going to cause gentrification. So they're building their own food hall, like you said, what we talked about before. Right. They're building their own Crog Street Market in there as well. What their goal is to do is try to get every, like, either black owner or every young person coming out the AUC who wants to open up a restaurant, they want that to be the hub for micro um, Micro restaurant, which is idea, like let's say you have an idea to start a smoothie restaurant, but you don't want to have the capital. So the idea is that you can go there, start the smoothie idea. If it doesn't work there, you realize, okay, you know, I spent six months, it didn't work. They're going to have one part, which is a micro incubator for food space, like food food design, food, and then also a place for like those businesses that are already kind of existing right now, like as a, as a restaurant space. So that's going to be there. The other thing is, too, like Don Ray is also raising something as well because he knows the AUC right there. He knows where they are as well. They're doing something nobody else does. We don't really have black venture capital. 
And so one aspect of it, too, is that when it opens up, they're going to have one of the few black venture capital firms in America located there as well. They're going to have direct access to the AUC, and they're going to have a certain dollar amount. I'm not going to say what it is, but it will be in the millions to purposely invest in people who want to start ideas and businesses. They they did they have done a terrible job, and I think part of it, too, because this is like a new thing for them. This is like starting from like zero to like the NBA. But they're starting because, like, it's one thing to play basketball. It's another thing. About, all right, we need you to start for the, the Hawks tomorrow. You can say what you want about the Hawks, but it's a different thing. We right, play no, everybody on the team. <laughs> so that's right. ball. Yeah. That, that was like the most perfect. Play. That's like the most perfect analogy, like from zero to like that's Yeah. So that's where they are right now. And so they have essentially three businesses going on. They have the real estate side, which they're developing all that. They have this whole Crog Street Market thing, which is going to be essentially an incubator or a holding place for like black owned restaurants. And then they have the whole venture capital space in the same spot in the West End, in that one West End mall. And so their thing is like, and so they've been talking to like a lot of black entertainers, a lot of celebrities, people we've like, I, and I've also criticized as well from not investing in the community. But Sarah, Don Ray's whole thing is like, listen, I'm connected to people. I'm not known to most people, but I'm connected to people in music. I'm protect, you know, now connected to people in like the, yeah, the, the shine, the glitz and glam, yeah, does, and, and the uh, private equity uh, space. Yeah, and his, his Don Ray's whole pitch to all these people in Black Atlanta is like, listen, we're gonna open up this place soon. It's gonna open up in about three years. You got money, athlete, entertainer, movie star, whatever. People always say it's hard to find place to invest in Black people. I'm telling you right now, I can invest in Black people. I just need your money, like like any other venture capital firm. Right. You know, this is how much it's gonna cost to get in this round. So we can. So his idea was like, we can stop saying like. Well, we got all these black people in the land. They don't know how to give money. His thing is like, we're going to set up the physical location where if you are a black person with money anywhere in the world, you know I can go to the West End, put money into this venture capital firm. I know it's a real place. I know there are other black people working and living here. And so that's where the West End is at. And so it is, they're taking big swings and it is going to be tough, but they got to start telling that story about what they're trying to do because that is super important. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go read article now. No, nah, that's that's what I was gonna yeah, say. I'm like, definitely, I, I'm definitely gonna have to read I the article now. I, I appreciate that, man. You, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's a it's a lot to take in. Yeah, that's a lot of work they're gonna have to do. I know that's what I'm saying, but that, and then the other thing is too. Ryan also owns another place on the Beltline called Generator Inside Telephone Loss. Yeah. And what they're trying to do on that side is they're trying to essentially incubate nonprofits to get connected to direct funding. So it's right on the, if you know where Irwin. <laughs> Not Irwin Street. So if you're on the Bell Line, you know there's this like this new strip of it's West Side or East, east Side. East Side. I'm sorry, okay. on the East Side, there's this part that's this is like a couple new restaurants, like really shiny, really fancy new restaurants. Like if you go from Murder Kroger, you're walking backwards. Okay, it's like this little row of like like stuff like two Urban Licks is over there and stuff like that. They own another place in there called Generate, and that's going to be a thing where people essentially have ideas for either nonprofit space or human interest space. One part of it's the bar, and the revenues and the proceeds from the bar go directly into funding like these people who have ideas on how to get stuff started. Just because Ryan was so pissed on how the belt line where he's like, I'm going to try to do my best to be a social entrepreneur. I don't know if any of this is going to work out, but I want the revenues from my businesses to go funding people in Atlanta, particularly like low-income people and black people who have ideas but can't get connected from point A to point B. Now, Ryan's a white guy. He doesn't. He knows that. That's why he partnered with Don Ray, who's like a black guy who knows how to connect to other black people who know how to make that work. Mm-hmm. So it is ambitious, but it's the only person doing anything in that space. I'm, with the exception of one other group of people trying to raise black venture capital. This is a woman uh, by the name of Jewel Melanie. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. I'm not. Nah. Please educate you us. You guys should look her up, too. Jewel Melody? Yeah, she's, she's dope. Uh, her, it's a group that she's leading right now alongside this other guy named Justin Dawkins. He's good people, too. Um, Jewel Melanie, long story short, she's one of the people like, who moved to Atlanta, um, was at a job, 
found started a business out of it, sold that business to Amazon for a, a substantial to amount. Jeff Bezos for yeah, for money. a substantial Jeff amount. Bezos I'm not going to get into what that is. <laughs> um, and so she is now one of the few black people in the venture capital space. But she's like, listen, I'm a black woman in Atlanta. I want to invest in companies. I don't know where they are right now. But I know other people. So she and this other guy named Justin Dawkins, who works at Google in Atlanta as well, and another guy named Joey Womack, who had an incubator called Goody Nation, which was essentially creating these all these great black ideas, like people had to help communities. I helped them with, like, they had a whole thing where people use tech-based solutions to aspects of gentrification, tech-based solutions uh. to people who are low-income who need healthcare, but they could never get funding to get it any further. Like, they would help people come up with, not just, like, the website, but like actually physically how to build a prototype, how to build an app, how to, to you know, and they, he, he was doing it. Joey was doing all that. So now Jewel, Joey, Justin, they're working on another incubator on how to kind of solve social issues for black people and put money behind it. So, like, you're going to start seeing more black people in that space. But, like, any venture capital firm, even though Jewel is a for sure millionaire, she's got to bring in a lot more money to, like, make this thing pop. But there are, those are the two black people, and, and alongside, of course, OG Paul Judge, um, mm. who are like legit, we're going to invest in black people and we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to try to get other people to do the same. Again, they are not out there telling their story, but I'm like, you need to tell that story because people need to understand the narrative of Atlanta. We were a lot of things, but there are people who want to generally do good and do right by people and who are trying to make this thing happen, but they, they need to let people know that. So the West End is a part of that movement. And it's one of the movies that's not talked about a lot, but there it's not feeling it's not philanthropic. There are black people like for us bias in terms of capitalism and like on a big scale. So that's a long roundabout way to get about the West End, but I wanted you guys to know that. No, nah, it was most definitely education. I do have one question for my, 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 oh, oh, you got too. another question? I did, I did say yeah. two. Oh my bad. My my first one was pretty long. Oh. My answer was much longer, so, yeah, so you know. My apologies. It's it good information though. Yeah, yeah. Then do you want to skip my question? Yeah, I know you I'm, I'm selfish I'm, I'm, with I'm these questions. I'm, right, I'm sliding right. back. Yeah. You got to excuse my homeboy, man. He oh, just, it's all good. All right. So, I ain't so, got no home training. <laughs> so with the Confederate statues, man, I um, I was thinking about it. and Because, you know, a lot of people have a lot of pride in the, mm-hmm. in the Confederate flags and, you know, the, the Confederate soldiers. It's okay to be wrong. It's treason. Uh, I think the Civil War is the only time <laughs> in history where the losers keep to keep their identity. That's a good way to put that. You know what I'm saying? Like, so say for instance, let's, let's, let's not make it, I was thinking about writing a book or making a movie about it, but flipping it. Um, say like, I was thinking about how I could do it, make it like it was some bloods or some crips and mm-hmm. where the bloods became crips, but they still rock you know, all the blood paraphernalia. And fight other people for being mad <laughs> that they're still wearing their paraphernalia. Yeah, just to put it in content, like because th- when we were growing up in school, they said that they seceded to the union, or they, you know, they yeah. they yeah. succeed. Yeah, they left the union. They no, I or, mean, I mean, well, they left the. They United conceded States. to the union, meaning that they once they lost the Civil War, that they went back to the union, and they're supposed to my. Get rid of the Confederacy. Right. They got rid of the Articles of Confederation. However, they still rocking their flags. So, long, long, long question, even longer, man. Um, I was thinking, like, what would be the best course of action to get rid of all these uh, Confederate uh, statues, most importantly on Stone Mountain and then uh, all over the want, South? Me personally, I wouldn't want them removed. 
I'm going to answer that, but I want to actually hear why you don't want oh, the reminder. Yeah. I think people need a reminder where you're coming from. Because so if you take the statues down, I think people are going to start feel like they can rewrite and wa- rewash history and stop calling it slaves and start coining them indentured servants. Like, I think you need that 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 uh, that brass reminder. Like, uh, this happened. This is what it is. I, I I think the Confederate statues should be in museums, just like Confederate flags. They are treasonous articles, and if they are here, then you should literally go to jail. Like it's it's treason. I don't see how it's seen any other way, shape, or form. It's treason. But like, when was those statues built? I want to answer that because uh-huh. I want to pause right on that. All right, so before we get into that, there's two people in particular I think that your viewers at home should go to, particularly one about what you said before, which is like this whole issue of the Confederacy kind of keeping that legacy up. So there's an author. He's on Twitter. His name is David Silkenot, but I'm going to spell that for you. David, you know how to spell that, but his last name is S-I-L-K-E-N-A-T. So S-I-L-K-E-N-A-T. Um, and another woman, her name is Carrie Lee Merritt. Um, her is Carrie Key. I'm sorry, K-E-R-I, Lee, L-E-I-G-H, and then Merritt, um, M-E-R-R-I-T-T. She has a YouTube channel called Meritocracy, which is like her last name, but Ocracy at the end of it. Um, They both are like Civil War historians here in Atlanta. They go through every single aspect of what you guys are talking about right now. They have books on it. They constantly lecture on it. There's a couple things, though, for both of you said. That's why I'm going to pause it right here so we can get to that. One, um... I do, and also what you were saying to Napoleon about the, the the Civil War things and like stuff about that should be in a museum. I actually do agree with that. It's earlier this year, Brian Kemp, the governor, signed a law that was essentially giving people jail time if they defaced or removed any Confederate monument. At the last minute, though, they tacked in on civil rights. So this was, and it was actually brought up by another Republican. Um, but they tacked that civil rights thing on it on at the end to get the bill passed. The thing about that is, though, most of the Civil War things that we actually think about happen after the Civil War. And I don't mean like a year or two after. So like everything from the Confederate um, Confederate generals, the three Confederate generals that's on Stone Mountain right now, that actually happened as a result. We talked about before the Klansmen. Uh-huh. When Birth of a Nation came out in 1915, the owners of... Um, Stone Mountain, the Venerable Brothers, were approached by a woman who was a member of the Daughters of the Confederacy saying, we need to remember our history like this movie did. It is actually in writing. Right. She then goes to the Venerable Brothers on Stone Mountain who own a large granite core because Stone Mountain was essentially owned by one group, the Venerable Brothers. That same year, in 1950, when the KKK had that second rise, it was because the Venerable Brothers allowed the Klan to actually have their rallies there first. It's the reason why the Klan still exists there today like that for their rallies. When the Venerable Brothers then approached the guy who would eventually do the Washington Monument out in South Dakota with the four presidents, he actually started his work first in Atlanta on the Stone Mountain piece. And so all of those things about it actually kind of, most of the memorials that we know about it now happen the moment Birth of a Nation and the Klansmen drop, and then also like the moment in the 1950s where black people are starting to gain things in civil rights. So most of the statues you see, most of the monuments you see, happen afterwards because during reconstruction people forget about this when the union like whooped the south ass they got rid of all of that stuff right so all of that had to be rebuilt or people brought it from out their home and they had to just build it from collective memory even the battle flag we see like the confederacy that's not actually the confederate flag wow really no it's like it, i was i was saying like oh man you really you really don't like black people you also must be stupid because <laughs> like the actual flag of the confederacy I doesn't look anonymous. anything like that it looks more closer to the state of georgia's flag today 
Yeah, I have I seen that. I seen yeah. that. And so I'm always like, okay, that's interesting. But people start using like this is a Confederate battle flag. Even Confederate historians like that was like maybe the third version of that, and it wasn't even that popular. And like, but it became like the symbol because it's just a visual. It's a much different visual representation like the other one was, which was like kind of like a nondescript flag. Um, but all that to say is that the Confederate monuments, for the most part, in the state of Georgia, are like afterwards and they were always ways to intimidate black people they actually didn't have anything to do with the war i do think though they should be people should still learn from them that's why i'm like really in support about putting in the history so and the thing about stone mountain is interesting because i wrote an article about this too and i spent out time out there stone mountains thing is this is the the loophole so stone mountain is the by it is actually the state's most popular attraction period it's not the arena it's not mercedes-benz stadium the most popular attraction in the state of georgia is stone mountain park and it's by a long shot, too. Wow. And that's just from the official people who come through like with actual ticket sales, not include the people who park in Stone Mountain Village and just walk in there for free. By, by every measure, Stone Mountain is the most popular. The state of Georgia did this thing where they outsourced all the maintenance, all the work, and all the management to a private company called Hershen Entertainment. They've been buying like properties all across America. They own Dollywood now. Um, they actually own the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, Her- wow. Yeah, the, Her- the Hershen Entertainment, they own it. And Hershen Entertainment has no intentions of removing any of the Confederate names from the streets, removing the monuments, or removing the Confederate flags that go up every morning um, at the base of Stone Mountain Park before you go walk up the mountain. And so the state did that, and now they didn't pass that law, which is said, like, all right, cool. So if you take down any Confederate monuments, like in the case of the flag, now even if somebody else buys out Stone Mountain from them, if that company buys and takes it down, they could do that, but the company then can't do things like change like the mountain side facing thing itself and they can't remove any of the, the statues. So the next best thing would be if you want to get rid of monuments to put them in a museum because by law now you could go to jail from just even like defacing them. Do you think they should be removed? I think most of them should. I, I do think that for the most part because like historically they didn't have anything to do with the actual, they came so much later like 1920, the Civil War ended in 1865, like 1924 that's 59 years later fam, like that's a whole person's lifetime. Yeah. Right, but like a lot of statues or monuments are built like after the fact it's like signifying an event, like pyramids were built after the pharaoh was dead. And that's a fair part about it, but when you think about how much damage has been no it is that's what i'm saying i think if they're gonna be i want them taken down and put into either museum or all put at stone mountain park like all of them you got something to say <laughs> you said that the pyramids were built after the pharaohs that some of them okay because they use the because fa- that's where they bury their pharaohs. Yeah, I was yeah, that the pharaohs generally put you know he can't he can't command the uh well not really command because people think slaves built the pyramids but they weren't they was paid um, yeah, that's another story, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm just saying, like, that w- it breeds to my point when I was saying that because I can't even think my thought. Right well, I'm a, you, I'm you don't want this. It's not. It's part. It's part of like you don't want to whitewash the, the history of it or like remove it. Yeah, because 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 I, I I don't see what good that's gonna do. Okay, so I want to counter that, which is. Do you actually know about anything else outside of the Civil War? Like, do you know anything? Like, in, I mean, this is not like a like uh, just a general. Like, in, in what way? What, okay, what, so what the way we teach- I, I can say one thing I do know. Like, you talked about the Daughters of the Confederacy. They lobbied whatever school systems and all this good stuff and got slavery curriculum put into the school system for us to learn about slavery so we can feel that we were inferior. That's why. Why you? Why would you learn about slavery in elementary school? 
Why is this an elementary school class? That that's kind of heavy, don't you think? Why is everybody talking about slavery in elementary school? Don't you think? Wouldn't you reserve that to high school, maybe? But no, the sons of the the daughters of the Confederacy said, "Hey, we want it to be in elementary schools and all this good stuff." So the daughters of the Confederacy have done a lot of stuff as far as monuments, as far as school curriculum, as far as putting it into the infrastructure of America. So that's all I know. But. A re- resident historian can educate us. Uh, so the thing about the monuments is, like, most people aren't actually taught. But this goes to what you're saying. Most people actually aren't taught Civil War history. What we are taught is, like, this version. Because the, the Daughters of the Confederacy at that time was, like, one of a very pow- powerful lobbying group. And so we're not even told accurate um, history. And so that's why I mentioned the two people before, David Sil- Silkenot and um, Carrie Lee Mary, because they pull up a lot of historical documents. They go to the places. The actual historical memory of the Civil War is, like, much different from the people who lived it close to the time than versus the people over time is how it becomes. And so the history we're taught in the Civil War is like, oh, it was the whole thing about uh, students say, I mean, schools, sometimes students, students were saying state rights is one of those lobbying things. Like, it was in the articles of, like, the the Confederacy. Like, slavery Mm -hmm. was a main contentious point as that was, like, their overall economic engine. Like, slavery was a part of the reason why they seceded, right? This is not, like, a debatable thing. It's in their articles. So, like, when you teach history, you have to teach the proper way about it, about Confederate, like, Civil War history, but we don't. We kind of give these highlights that kind of is still, like, oh, the South just wanted to be independent and slavery was a semi part of it. It was like, no, nah, slavery was a big part of it. And then the other <laughs> part of it was we were not taught the history of like people who rebelled during the civil war, particularly like people. I, we're not talking about black history at all in the civil war. We're just not. And for the most part, and the other part is people who rebelled against it. Like there were people who were in the South who were not a part of like the South, like separating from the union. So that whole aspect of history is just not told whatsoever. So people think that 100% of the South, 100% of white people were for it. That actually wasn't the case at all. We're also not taught the fact that for the most part, most people who actually fought in the Civil War were typically poor and working class white people. Like the rich and the aristocracy did not have their kids go to war, which I don't know, spoiler alert, is kind of the history of America. Right. And so <laughs> that aspect kinda of it. still happens. Yeah, you got to show the Southern resistance to that. You got to show how much slaves and also too slaves jumped ship a lot more than the civil war than any other time they did before that once people got aware of the civil war slaves were jumping ship right like back and forth we also had to teach a history about why lincoln freed the slaves it was not because he was just like this humble and like honorable man he still could have been that but his reason was just for a strategic reason he needed to destabilize the south more so some he knew some people were going to men would join the the Union Army as soldiers, he also knew that just having slaves being aware that, oh, wait a minute, there's an army coming in, I can be free if I go side with them, I'm going to leave. Which is why we even have with Stone Mountain, a place called Shermantown now. So if you actually go to Shermantown right now, when Sherman was marching to the sea, um, there's a part of Stone, and that's, this is an unfortunate part about it, but there's a part of Stone Mountain called Shermantown. It's where the black mm-hmm. people settled at after Sherman was burning down the Civil War. I'm burning down, during the Civil War, all of Stone Mountain on its way to Atlanta. He burned down all but two buildings, one of which was the mayor's house, which, ironically enough, was built by slaves, and then also, like, the train depot, because the train depot was generally how you move stuff back and forth, so you're not going to, like, destroy your supply supply line. Everything else was burned down. Black people who settled, and they were following Sherman for other parts of Georgia, they settled in this part called Shermantown, which still exists in Stone Mountain to this day, but they erased so much of that history, like, either by knocking over most of the monuments, putting like a senior citizen's home that there's literally just only a sign that says Shermantown now, but it still exists. So black people who were there during that time in Stone Mountain in the Civil War, they weren't even given that history unless they actually lived there and you actually had the history of Shermantown. So I'm with you. We got to teach it, but we got to teach like it's not great. It's not fun. Um, it was definitely a lost cause for the South in the sense that they were going to lose from the beginning for the most part. 
Like, there was no – you try to secede against the United States, I guarantee you nothing – people forget about this. You try to secede from the United States of America. Right. Like, the United States is going to pull out all stops to stop you. People forget about the number – like, just people becoming turncoats within the South. So, like, that whole history about the South isn't told. And when you learn that history, and not only does it make the, the Confederacy look way less – Put viable. together, yeah, and vi- it 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 changes your whole perception of the war, and so I think that, like you say, if we're gonna keep those minds, they got to be in a place like a like a stone mountain, which becomes a living museum, provides context to what's actually going on. Okay, so so if these uh, monuments are removed. I didn't say I say I would rather than be like at a place like stone mountain, all of them there, so you can kind of teach the full right, history. Right, right, but but if you live there, you guys probably got some of these uh, monuments in front of public buildings. Yeah, looking across the United States in front of schools and what have you. So if these statues are removed, because everybody here, I'm assuming, is in favor of removing them. Uh, uh, like I said, museums. Right, 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 yeah. right. But what, not the why, but what, what do you think that would do for black folk? Oh, like, psychologically or whatever. Like, when you're saying you're removing it, like, is that symbolizing anything to you? Like, you think it's a just thing to do? Is it right? Like, like, like what? Type of feeling are you gathering from this removal? If so, if they're all removed, so I, I can, do you want to go? Or yeah, I, you should go. Okay, so yeah, because I feel like your answer would be better than mine. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for I know his answer would be better. <laughs> I, I, and this is my homeboy Twan. <laughs> 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 but the my reason is for removing it is you do what you know and just be okay. As a, I, I want to remove for the kids, not for any grown person, not because it would give me a fuzzy feeling inside, anything like that. I don't want a black, brown, Asian, whatever kid to come and see this statue, and then they walk by this statue every day on their way to school. Now they're 13, and they decide to read the statue, and then they do all this stuff, and it's like, hey, I'm walking by this statue of this dude called uh, whatever his name might be, and he hated black people or Asian people or Jews or Gentiles or whatever person you want to say he hated, and he's being commemorated on my way to school, and it's like, it's, it's, it's nothing. Like, it's, it's, it's. It's just like the air you breathe. That ain't that ain't cool. Like that type of hate and animosity from a loser shouldn't be like just everyday life for anybody. So that's that's where I'm coming at it from. It's like, bro, like it's they lost. Get over it. Like this shouldn't be everyday. Like like oh yeah, I, I'm finna. Your brake lights are coming on. Like oh racism. Look oh right. Like it it it. It um, yeah, we yeah, yeah we don't got no Pearl Harbor. We don't yeah. have Japanese statues and all that stuff. It just it normalizes the racism of America. So I'm saying we should you, we should take those away to stop the normalization of racism in America. And also, just as he was saying, to tell the tell the complete story. Like I, I I grew, I've learned about Harriet Tubman in elementary school. All I learned, she was the conductor of the. Underground Railroad. It took me going to see the movie two weeks ago to find out that she was she was a, a sergeant in the Union Army. And she freed so many slaves during the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I know a lot of people, why, and I can understand why you would be like, you know, because at some point it feels like a Pyrrhic victory, right? So if you pull a lot of the, a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that really has no meaning. 
And so, uh, okay. I'm glad you said yeah, that. For, yeah, so for our like, listeners, no, no, I, I know what you mean. Because I know what you mean. Because like Just pulling the statute necessarily won't solve racism, right? It won't right. solve like police shooting people, right? It won't solve a lot of other things. But I think there is a certain group of people who will feel as if they feel somewhat vindicated, and they don't have to live with that. I do think, though, let's say hypothetically, we just went with that thing. Like you said, we put all the Confederate statues. We're just focused on Georgia in one museum. I think the pushback to that will be much more severe than we've seen in a long time. Oh, no, it most definitely probably but would. I want to do one for thing. For no reason. I want to do one thing on the side. So if you guys go to Stone Mountain, there is a, the two buildings I told you about before that um, got burned down. One that the state, the one was the depot, obviously. Another one was the mayor's house. The mayor's house was built by enslaved Africans. It is now owned by one black couple. Uh, they're the they're the Browns. They own it. It's it's now one of the few places in Stone Mountain that's actually owned by a black person. Like period. Like one of the few businesses that are, buildings that are owned by a black person. It's ironic that the building that was built by slaves by a mayor who wanted to keep slaves and and, and keep the Confederacy alive is now owned by two black people. Um, it's called, they, they, so they built it out. They're building a couple things in it. They're, they're trying to incubate businesses in the Stone Mountain area now. They have one business, which is a coffee business called Gilly Brew Bar, which has been open. It's got a large, large, it's got a pretty good following for Stone Mountain Village now. It's, and it has like both black people, white people, and people who come through. Mm-hmm. I would say you guys should definitely go out and support them. They're open seven days a week. They also are opening up in that same building. Um, the same kitchen where like the mammies and stuff like that would cook their food. They're opening up a restaurant on that side of it now, which would be another black owned business. And the upstairs of it, they're opening that up to be another black owned business. So you had three black owned businesses in one building that was a former, formerly built by Confederates. And I can't shout them out enough, but it's called Gilly Brew Bar at the Stone Mountain Mayor's House. They could definitely use guys, you guys and your listeners support to come and check that out. Well, most definitely. I'm, we're going to yeah. check them out uh, expeditiously. Yeah. Um, so, okay, T.I. Ah, uh, oh, <laughs> damn! You're right. I just, I just, I just used nice words. I didn't even nah, think let's, about let's, that. Uh, let's edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man! So I want to ask another question. Uh, my real second. You got question. another? Question? I had another question. Okay. Um, because, I'm trying to learn. Something. No, I am. I really am. I, I like learning stuff. Random, okay. Especially random. But hey, reading. I do hate reading. I am. I'm not gonna lie. It's the We're gonna get to that. Oxymoronic. Like you realize if you read, you die, right? My man, see, that's why I'm gonna start reading. I mean, reading, and I think let's be clear: like reading is a lot of things. You read emotions, you read symbols. Like reading is something your brain has to do. We have evolved from primates because of our ability to read and our posable thumb. If uh, you can't read, we we legit as a people perish. Uh, no, right. isn't, isn't like it books. more like understand instead of reading? Anything we can comprehend. understand anything, but like reading requires like a certain. You have to understand. It's both understanding and comprehension, but reading requires that you actually learn a system. And whether that system be, like, physical, like, writing like this or, like, cuneiform or, like, stuff, you have to actually, like, process a system, which means that you live in a society that has some form of order. Now, let me clarify. I don't want everybody thinking I'm just something. I don't like reading books. I read articles. I I read, you know, pages, websites. Instagram posts. I will read an Instagram post. I'll read a... Uh, Pornhub captions. (laughs) (laughs) I will read a stripper's bio. Stripper's bio. (laughs) But... But nah, but when it comes to like just cereal boxes, just sitting down <laughs> reading a book, like I just, I, it, it's either all or nothing. I can sit there and read the whole thing for two hours, but then the next day I got to pick it up and read it again. Nah, I don't feel like it. Now, you know, a lot of people like that. I'm not even going to beat you up on that because yeah. I think a lot of people reading for so long, you have 18 years in which reading you're forced to do. By the time you become an adult, you don't want to do anything you're forced to do. So I think that's a very logical. Right. Yeah. If it, honestly, if you try reading, 
like now it's got, it's kind of like food you had before. Like I remember I used to hate black eyed peas when I was little. Yes, I'm a black person. I used to hate black eyed peas and collard greens, but um. Yeah, I hated them when I was little, but then I tried them again when no, I got older. No, the other day, then, I read, yeah. well, the other month, I read, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I read Jermaine. That, that was I, your shade. I didn't even yeah, say that. Yeah, I right read then. Jermaine Jackson's um, You Are Not Alone book. I read, like, seven chapters in one day. Boom, knocked them out. Ba 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 ba. I was like, it's a good book. Then I got back to it. I was like, yeah. Hey, man, you read on your time. Don't worry yeah, about all these. You uh, read on your time. So, so, back to my question. <laughs> so you you gave us you gave us a lot of information on the on the red clay. I wanted to see if you knew anything about the white clay. White clay. Yeah. In Georgia. Yeah. No, I feel like I'm afraid to ask where this is going. No, the no, white clay that uh, you know people, everybody, grandma eat it and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, okay, oh that yeah, white yeah, is okay. that white dirt? Okay, yeah, white dirt. Okay. Yeah, so white, white clay, white dirt. No, I didn't know where it was going because like, yeah. we went from reading the class. Like, what's happening here? No, so, no, oh, that okay. that reading was intentional. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so yeah, so. I actually thought about that today, actually. I was like, people who still eat it. I don't know if, how safe that is. I'm not, like, necessarily a nutritionist on this. But I do, I am aware that people sometimes eat it. I know sometimes pregnant women will, like, rub it on their belly or something like that to kind of heal. I cannot state on any medical properties related to it, but I am aware people still use it. So, I mean, but is it like, I know you were saying, because I actually learned today that dirt can't produce life. I've... Yeah, but we, yeah, we call everything that. dirt that's not dirt, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's because you know, growing up in my house, so everything was dirt. Nah. Our dirt, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> nah. But get your dirt butt in that bathtub, take a bath, get the dirt off it. But uh, no, seriously, so I was like, I was wondering if you could actually, if, if a white clay could actually produce, or a white dirt could produce life. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure. I'm like, I'm only like, was like looking in the red clay and soil. But like, if it's a clay, remember, clay is a type of soil, so soil has some life in it. So mm -hmm. it, it may not be able to grow a lot of things, but it probably could so grow it something. Could be something. something. But if it's like actual, like let's say you grind some granite up into dirt, it's just granite. It's not going to produce any life. Could you get on the mic? White dirt is baked clay. And what what else did you say it's on the not, microphone? It's not formed naturally. Yeah. It's not like taking clay off the ground, ground and eat it. They have clay and they like cook it and it becomes white dirt and then they – they're kind of addicted to it. It's not like, yeah, not like, like clay. So, yeah. Eric, what it tastes like? I've never had it before. I just know a lot of people who eat it. Yeah, it's, but they also eat cornstarch as an alternative if they don't eat uh, white dirt. It's kind of the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm country, but I ain't that country. I don't eat. No, clay. I, I, I just, definitely know. I've heard of said they hate dirt, but like, yeah. If this that if it has some, if it if it's a soil, period, it produces life. Um, another random thing is so like another thing is too, like sand is not dirt also like sand could be in dirt, but sand is not dirt. Mm. Sand is usually something that's like refined from something else. Or let's say like if something in the ocean, like over time, things like the, the ground, like the rocks itself actually like get the ocean itself, like refines it in the sand. So that's why sand. So like dirt is its own thing. But like, if you guys learn nothing else to say, you guys will learn like dirt, soil, sand, clay are all different hey, things. Hey, and I took horticulture in high school. Yeah. So did me and Mr. Henry the whole time. Mr. Gilbert. Oh, Mr. Gilbert, my bad. <laughs> you right. You right. Yeah, rest yeah. his soul. That, that's, that's what it was. Mr. Mr. Henry was English too. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Cause that, I, yeah. But 
<laughs> I'm just glad I wasn't the only one to ask uh, a Napoleon question on my homeboy podcast because that last question, uh, Andrew, we're gonna clap it up for you because you, what, but we because you, you are the question master, master of this, this is uh, a fancy bonus machine. I really like this of the bonus episode. Yeah, of my man, this podcast. machine is uh, owned by 121 Dreams Production. Uh, yeah, 121 Dreamers on IG and 121Dreams.com. Okay. okay, what is 121 Dreamers? This is Eric's uh, production company. Yeah, man. Mobile, podcast. mobile podcast. Oh, that's service. what's up, man. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. So congrats uh, on that. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think that's about all. I don't think I gave anything, anything. Any other questions? Any final thoughts? Anything? Uh, I will start asking the most random questions. You see, already. Yeah, you did already. I've been I've been holding back too. <laughs> oh, you know, one thing we didn't touch on, which uh, with the Disney and this with another the second reason, yeah. the second thing I want uh, the rumor that in uh, either. Uh, Frozen three, they said the the the, the girl was gonna have a girlfriend. I I didn't like Frozen anyway, but that's a whole I, nother. Yeah, issue. I didn't. Yeah, it's I didn't, I've never I watched. Never, it. I've never watched it. You shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't. But <laughs> so is Disney losing a flair with the uh with the with the movies because they can't. Well, then ah, yeah. looking at it, I think Disney lost their flair for a while because. They Pixar li- was the one who was making the good movies. Right. They bought Disney they is bought living Pixar, off of Marvel. And they just yeah, they're living off of Marvel and they're literally just making remaking all their old classics live action. Man, they lazy. They Apple now. Like yeah. <laughs> I mean they both they both had Steve Jobs like working on them. So Man. <laughs> but I was oh, there's one thing I would do I do want to bring about Disney and the whole streaming wars thing. Okay. All right, so Disney is the what Disney's doing, like, granted, I do agree with you fully. Like, the products, they've been making more money than anything ever has, but, like, it is g- generic. It is generic to outright not good. But the Disney streak between 2015 and ni- and right now, 2019, is probably the most impressive streak of any movie studio in the modern era of movie studios. It's actually, it's not just, like, what you think it is. It is quite possibly the most impressive thing that's happened in the modern oh, era. Oh, they bought, like, two... They're the two properties they bought, like between Marvel and Star Wars, it's it's crazy. Oh yeah, let's go through that. All right, so when people talk about, I want to get to that. So when people talk the modern era film, they're talking specifically about the 1970s. Some people say 1973, two with The Godfather, but most people will say 1975 is the start of the modern film era when you get um, like that whole era, like The Exorcist and all of that stuff. Like right. that's the, also the era in which we actually have, guys out it. Yeah, we also had the era like we can actually like track box office tickets now. And so that's actually why a lot of people think that as well. No studio has done what Disney's done in the last four years. It's almost as if Michael, it's almost as if the golden state warriors never lost. Like they're actually like 82 and oh, yeah, it's not even 82. No. So imagine like instead of that year, that year they went 73 and nine and lost. Imagine the golden state warriors didn't lose that one or lose like, and they just didn't lose period. Like they Mm. just, they beat the cast four one. They, they went three more titles. So why are you saying that? All right. So let's go 2015 Disney. Actually, we got a. I mean, the website's up now. But Box Office Mojo has a, a good breakdown every year about the number of tickets sold, number of studios, and all of that. They're like every movie, it seems like. Yeah. So every year f- since 2015 and on, Disney's had one movie in the top five, and in the U.S., one five in the top, and, and one movie in the top five worldwide. Within four years, they went from having at least one movie in 2015, which mm-hmm. was um, then to another movie in 2016. By 2019, they had five of the top six movies. 
but the one movie that they didn't, which was Spider-Man Homecoming, they actually produced that one on their own. So you could argue that Disney essentially had the top six movies. No, And they all of them did a billion dollars. Disney's had a billion dollar film every single year for the last five years. And not just one. They've had multiple ones in multiple platforms with multiple audiences. And that has never happened before. And in addition to that, too, Disney's market share now has grown. But even before Fox is aware, in 2017 and 2018, 25 cents of every box office dollar in the U.S. and now 25 cents on every dollar in the world now goes to a Disney film. That ain't never happened before. That is amazing. However, I feel it's it's good. I feel like it's a nice, a stars aligning thing. I feel like, uh, like he said, the Marvel and Star Wars, like, bro, like you got everybody's child, like how we was talking about X-Men. Like, dun, 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 dun. like that's everybody's childhood. Everybody's going to go see that. And then Star Wars is, well, used to be great. So a lot of those. <laughs> I mean, that was super disrespectful. I mean, so I feel like outside of that, I mean, nah, Disney does put out quality content. And I feel like what yeah, they're doing. I'm looking doing, at these numbers, man. These numbers yeah. are ridiculous. Yeah, what, well, what other movies are on there besides Marvel well, I just and Star pulled, Wars? I just pulled up Disney's, uh, so. So Lion King did a billion this year, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did, did a billion six. So it's in that's child. That's pulling from childhood, though. No, no, I'm no, saying no, like no. children's movies don't even produce the highest gross in typical kids movie. Would probably I mean on a good worldwide release is like 700, 800 million times. But they dropped those no, movies no. at the right time. No, what I'm animated saying or animated no, too. So or kids no. movies in general. So, so what Disney is doing is nostalgia, nostalgia. That so I, I I have kids, so I'm going to take my kids to mm-hmm. see your movie. So that's two ticket sales. So you're selling two ticket sales for every one movie they really, make. You really, really is mean? three because most of the parents I know, they went and saw it on their own. Then they took their kid. You, yeah, you see what I mean? So I, I'm not saying that what they're do, doing isn't great. I'm just saying or or um, unique, uh, a unique thing done in time and history mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. I'm just saying like, bro, it was I, I, I okay, so we were talking about cartoon <laughs> movies and all that good stuff. How many times as a kid did you say, hey, I want to see an X-Men movie and that dude from Star Trek should be Professor X? Like, I feel like everybody, oh, everybody had that. said that. Everybody yeah. said that. Like, they so, made him Professor X. But that was done by a different company. That was Fox. <laughs> no, but yeah. I'm just saying, like, everybody wanted these movies. So they just, they, like, every, like, like let's Ninja Turtles selling is not that crazy. Like, bro, everybody wanted to see nah, a Ninja Turtle movie. Okay, let's do Ninja Turtles. All right, so Ninja Turtles had two, three different box office runs. They had the one in the 90s, what most people remember. Right. They had a one that didn't happen, like the early two thousand. Like did an animated movie. That movie didn't go anywhere. It was right. trash. Yeah. And then they did. I know this because I worked on the the twenty fourteen remake. I actually worked on that movie. Uh-huh. But it wasn't. But it, it made wasn't money, good. but then the sequel two years later like made no money. And so it's really hard. The sequel was terrible though. I know it just didn't make money. <laughs> that, Man, they they. Yeah. But no. Yeah, Michael yeah, Bay movies Michael usually Bay, make money, yeah. but that movie actually underperforming for a, a That's when people were hating on Michael Bay right there and uh, that was it that was little part. Oh, Transformers yeah. type stuff, yeah. I don't know how to see it now. But yeah. I think another thing that happened that value, the the with the because um, they came back with Ninja Turtles, just specifically for Ninja Turtles. They came back with Ninja Turtles and they kidified for the for the cartoon on the, that was on Nickelodeon or whatever. Then when the movies came out, kids were excited to go see the movie. But then it was like these six foot seven to- turtles. It was totally different what yeah. they was used to yeah. seeing on TV. 
They really look like mutants. <laughs> right, right. So they was like, so I know a lot of children hated the movie. So that's probably another reason why the sequel didn't do great. Yeah, Disney's overperforming us. The reason I bring up the Warriors, like a kids movie can do really well. Like the Despicable movies have done well, but they've also overperformed. The only way to describe it is that the Warriors, the Warriors could easily won fifty games a year and made the playoffs. They were going sixty and seventy games. That's what Disney's doing. Like. The Lion King remake, most people thought even on the high, it was only going to do like a billion dollars. It's made damn near $1.7 billion. They're overperforming in a way that's not even normal. It's it's almost unsustainable to where, and the other thing is who we bring up the Pixar acquisition. I know everybody brings that up, but like, th- let's go back a minute. Bob Iger becomes the CEO in 2005. This is actually probably the most important CEO outside of Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos that nobody ever talks about. He's the president, CEO of Disney. The very next year, he buys Pixar. And the only reason he bought Pixar is because Pixar was like, you know, Pixar was like Drake at the time. People forget about this. Pixar was an independent company that had a distribution deal through Disney. They right. were not owned by Disney. Bob Iger said, like, this company will eventually make enough money and they will actually replace Disney. So let's offer them a, a max offer. So they offered them the $4 billion. They overpaid what a lot of people thought Pixar was worth. And Pixar was a publicly traded company at that point in time. People forget about that, too, because they were legit their own company that with a distribution deal. Then three years later, he buys Marvel. People forget about this. It wasn't that he bought Marvel. It was that in 2006, 2007, Marvel went to uh, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, asked for a $500 million line of credit because they wanted to start spearheading their own projects. So that's how they got the Iron Man. And the only characters that they had available were these C-list characters at the time, which were Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. They weren't A-list properties. And so... Paramount with J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs backing is what they got. That Disney saw that as Bob Iger saw that as a threat potentially. If this ever worked out and they get mm-hmm. it right, this could be a threat. He offers them money for that. Boom. Three years later, he goes and he offers Lucas. He talks to George Lucas. George Lucas knows Bob Iger directly from his time at Disney when they put on the Star Wars like cartoons and stuff like that. He was like, "What is your number?" Didn't ask any questions. He's like, "I know you you want to retire. You want to get out the business. What is your number?" George Lucas told him he wrote him a check that day, like. Now, in addition to that, two years ago, he buys this thing called Bam Tech. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bam Tech. No, not at all. Oh, they make video games? No, nah, no, nah, but that's a good guess. Bam Tech is probably the most. Nah, so Bam Tech, when you watch HBO Go for the most part, Bam Tech was actually created by Major League Baseball. It used to stand for Baseball something something. It was like a TV. Baseball actually came up with their first, in 2000, had their own legit streaming service in 2000. It was fully functional. They, they were streaming live games with baseball. To, to ah, I remember that. Yeah, and so baseball, Disney had to go to baseball to buy out the stake of Major League Baseball for that. They own 80% of that Major League Baseball owns the, uh, the other 20. And doing that, though, that was how they got Disney Plus off so fast, so quickly. Because they bought a company that also does, like, the infrastructure for HBO Go and other companies that are not done by AWS. So what essentially oh. Disney's done is something a little different, which is like you don't get down a lay down. Um, so if you want to start a streaming homes. service, so there's two ways. You have to have someone actually build it and maintain it, which is what Bam Tech does, which is what they do for HBO and not now HBO Max and some other companies. It is, I, when I look up Disney Plus, it is layout-wise exactly like HBO Go. Yeah, because the same company makes both and they manage both. The other thing was the only thing um, – and so those four companies in particular, the Bam Tech is more specific because when HBO Max launches next year or NBC does their own stream service, Peacock – it's going to be hard for them to build up a streaming service in like four months with all the back library catalog. Disney's like, okay, cool. You need help. We got it. What's your price? So Disney essentially is now getting money from their competitors yeah. to air their own product to air against Disney. They're trying to be Amazon. Disney uses Amazon AWS for like their storage cloud, mostly as a way to like, in case something is like a backup, mm-hmm. but Hulu also has its own cloud as well. And so what Disney, they own, Disney own about what? 70% of them? 60? 90 now. 
Is yeah. it 90? Because the only one is NBC. Because it was NBC, yeah. Fox, I want to say CBS and ABC. It was like a partnership between the four of them. It was. And they all, I think, stupidly like separated. You would have made more money with Hulu if you would have just stayed together as Hulu. You could have right. killed Netflix if they all were Hulu. There was no way Netflix competes with that. Yeah. But the other thing is, too, even though Disney bought out. And the other thing is, Disney owns 39% of Sky TV, which is like the Comcast of Europe. So Disney essentially does too. They own their distribution channels on every. They're vertically integrated. There's mm-hmm. not something that Disney doesn't do where they don't control it and out and access or like sells it out to their competitors. We have never seen nobody in the entertainment process control every aspect of their identity and their competitors. And Amazon's the only other company I think that's like that because Amazon AWS also keeps Netflix. Like they actually run Netflix. Mm-hmm. It could be theoretically possible that where Disney, a quarter billion dollar company, gets up in five years to a half a trillion dollars in value and be the most entertainment, most valuable entertainment company on the planet that only releases like eight products a year. We talk about the iPhone. The iPhone could never achieve that with just eight products a year. Eight. Not yeah. ten. Eight. That is something that's never happened before. So that that's why I think it's the most impressive thing that's probably happened in a long time. Yeah. That that I see I see what you're saying as far as uh that a little bit. I'm definitely gonna have to listen to playback to follow you because you are going <laughs> splitting out knowledge. But um I will say my final thought is uh people are mad at I mean Hulu. I know if I was Hulu, I'd be mad as hell because Hulu was like first. Netflix wasn't even doing streaming. Netflix was doing like delivery stuff. <laughs> and no, like, no, like Netflix, who was first? Netflix, Netflix definitely first. streamed because I used to have Netflix back when you had to take the C D <laughs> no, and put no, it in the ne- PS2. That's what I'm saying. But Hulu was H- Hulu nah, was streaming. Sh- Netflix had streamed at the time as well. No, nah, you took you took a Netflix disc put it in your PS2 or PS3 and then that lit- the CD was literally running your streaming app. What? I don't remember. I remember getting uh, the dude, actual like, DVD delivered. No, they delivered DVDs, but it got to the point where you could play it on your video game console with a disc. All you had to do was put the disc in there and you would just stream stuff. I never saw and that. And I remember sitting there was like, yo, this is so lazy. People are going to dig this. I remember Hulu, Hulu being Hulu first. was second. I remember Hulu being the first streaming platform I heard of. Uh, then Netflix came out. Well, at least well, Hulu, Hulu was probably the first solely streaming. Yeah, content. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, but, I mean, like Netflix could, had the disc. Ne- Netflix computer. had, but Netflix had streaming. Yeah, no, Netflix but, had that building coming. I saw it because I used to take a disc, put it in the PlayStation, and that's crazy. And so stream, you could stream yeah. from well. Actually, uh, yeah. I mean, as I said. Hulu was the first one. I mean, I mean, you know, I, that's why I like these things to be recorded. You see how I didn't argue? Yeah, you see how the guy was right. Because I, I know, because I know, I know, Netflix was killing Blockbuster, so they were still doing like yeah, the disc thing. But I don't know. I was just saying my final thought before I was so rudely interrupted by some of my homeboys. But uh, do, do do you guys have any? Andrew? You remember when uh, when, when that block, time I was Blockbuster right. and uh, Netflix was about to go in business <laughs> together, and Blockbuster oh, yes. turned them down. Yes, Amazon turned them down too. Amazon turned down yeah. Netflix or Blockbuster? Netflix actually went to Amazon first. Nah, I wow. thought, I thought, no, no, I thought yeah. the story went that Bezos wanted to buy Netflix and Netflix told him no. It was too. So, like, there's it. Reed Hastings good about lying about this, but yeah. Bezos was. So, first they went to Bezos. They didn't even, like, really care. Then Bezos goes back to them. Then they, they also went to Blockbuster twice. Yeah. So, it is. Like, it's Sony crazy. went to Nintendo with a video game idea and Nintendo ran them out. That's crazy. So, yeah. final thoughts. Uh, King, you in, any, any final thoughts? Uh, no, you can just follow me on Instagram at Twitter at I am King Williams. I am always 
there just talking about different things. So I am King Williams or in, on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, very engaging things. And this has been my homeboy podcast. I'm with my homeboy Twan. Whoa, whoa. So rude. So what? Rude. I thought, I, that, bro, you so said rude. something about whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, a- Andrew, you got any final thoughts? Oh, we already asked it. He said the thing about uh, whatever. Nah, I'm good, man. But, <laughs> Polly, do you have any final thoughts? I said my final thoughts, and then, uh, you know. My homeboy Eric, you got any final thoughts? Oh. I do, I do got one. I want, I want to shout, shout out Big Grams, B I G underscore Grams on Instagram. Uh, and if, for those you don't know, that's Bravo India Delta. Oh, Delta Golf, Golf. I can't spell today. Underscore Ralph. Man, we spelled it wrong. Rambo uh, Alpha Rambo. Alpha Move General General whatever man. <laughs> Big Grams man. Shout out to my homeboy. And this has been my homeboy's podcast. Hey man, this is I'm I messed it. Uh, yeah, this is my homeboy Twan. Yeah, this is my homeboy Napoleon, man. And this has been my homeboy podcast. And we out.